0: Wow, this is really nice to be here again. It's been 10 years because I spoke at this very conference t- exactly 10 years ago. So happy to be here again with a topic that I am very, very passionate about. that is about change, about transformation, about how we can improve the companies and the organization and the groups uh, we work with. Um, mm, I consider this a little bit of a little bit cringe but this is just to say that I work across consulting big organizations small organization products I run my own um, products as well so hopefully this is to say that you will find something that applies to you and your work and if it doesn't please come to me and let's have a conversation later and of course if you're too shy to, to ask questions just reach me out in many uh, one of the many channels out there So let's get into this. Why I consider design and designers really well-placed to drive change uh, in organizations. Uh, There are many reasons for me, but there are some skills that designers have that are really, really useful in this process. They're really, really useful. Um, The first of which is listening. Unfortunately, a lot of management, a lot of organizations spend too little time to listen internally. Uh, to the people, to everyone that works with them. But again, designers are really good at that. They're really good at emphasizing, they're really good at listening, and are really good at extracting the insight that comes out of this listening process, right? Then we have the second one, that is facilitating. Facilitating, of course, can be seen as an activity we do to reach a specific goal. But the interesting thing about facilitating itself is that within the process of doing it, we are also aligning the people that are participating in the facilitation process. And this is incredibly, incredibly powerful. It's a superpower that I feel too many designers underestimate in their day-to-day. Then we have modeling. Um, We are really used in taking really complex problems and simplifying them, translating them to something the people can assimilate, can process, can understand. And this again is essential because if we're presenting some change, if we want to transform something, we want to make sure that the people understand the change that is coming. And so this is essential, it's a ground level element to transform and again, bring change in organizations. And again, we're really, really skilled at this. And then we have interfacing. Again, this is interesting because to me, um, it's very underestimated. So we, when we talk inside organizations, a lot of the tools, the interfaces, um, the documentation we write, the stuff we do inside, um, can be considered as a sort of an internal interface between the people that work in the organization. Yeah, these are often text-heavy interfaces. These are documents. But if if I create a guidance, uh, it's basically a sort of a text-heavy interface. And these, again, are a really, really good way to automate, transform, and facilitate change in organizations. Really, really underestimated superpower. And so with these four, we can then bring in and say, hey, but design is focused on product, right? So we are used to to use our skills to design a result, to design a software, to design a service, to design this thing. So we design the product. The thing is, this statement. And that is, of course, true at at a base level. Um, It's also underestimating the fact that, first of all, design is inherently a collaborative practice. And second of all, that most of the people don't work alone. We work with other people. We work and we organize. And as these groups and these organizations grow and change and transform, there is a thing that happened that is called a Conway's Law. How many of you have ever heard of this? Just to get a sense, raise your hand. Very few, so I'm very glad to introduce this to you. So Conway's Law is a sort of an informal role. Like, it hasn't, it's very difficult to prove in practice with hard numbers, but historically has been proven, proven true. And also in my experience, every single time I see this happening over and over and over again in many, many organizations. And the core idea is that the way we shape the people that work on things, the way we shape the various teams, the various groups and organization, that gets reflected in the product we build. If we split through a line between two parts of the product, the the resulting product will be split through that line. And this is essential because that means that we actually have a lot of power in shaping the product if we start shaping the organization that shapes the product. And this is another reason why designers are really truly uh, very well suited to this kind of change. right? Because we can start shifting our attention Uh, Of course, this often comes intrinsically with seniority, with shifts to management, but even at any level, if we start focusing on how we are split, we can start thinking about what's happening. If we notice in our organization that there is a divide between two groups, we may put effort in bridging that divide. And of course, more broadly, this could also mean that when we reorganize a company, because we want to build a better product, so there is a direct relationship there. So let's switch a little bit to another fundamental topic here, that is about systems. Uh, To me, change cannot really be approached. Well, many things cannot really be approached without system thinking. But it's especially true in organizations, because when you start putting humans together in the same room, that becomes inherently a complex system. And so system thinking laws, system thinking dynamics start to apply. Every single time, this is in a sort of inescapable. And the idea about system thinking is that uh, we want to look at a system as a whole. Like There is a reductionist thinking that instead says, hey, if we take a system and we split in all the components parts and we do deep dive in each one of these parts, then we understand the system. And system thinking says, that's actually not true. We're slicing the system, but we're actually not understanding the full dynamic and the full extent of how the system works, because there are a lot of things that are emergent behaviors. And so this is key. I'm not this is not a talk about system thinking. There are plenty of books and plenty of things out there about it, but it's still essential. The critical thing, however, that is connected to this is that it's not possible to understand the full system. Like There is no way for us, for any individual, to grasp the complexity of all the interpersonal dynamic, or the organizational dynamic, of or the software dynamic. So when we start doing this, we are also acknowledging that we cannot understand it to an extent. This seems discouraging, but it's actually a very realistic take of what we can do and how we can operate on a system. And I like to quote Donella Meadows, which one of the people that did a lot, a lot of work in ecosystems and system thinking, is that, Everything, everywhere, whatever we do, we're actually working on an abstraction on reality. Because the system cannot be understood, we create models to understand the system. And these models are the things we operate on. But we also need, always, always need to be conscious that we are operating on a model. And I think that, for example, the business model Canvas is a beautiful example of this. It's a model. It's a very simple approach. It's a very high-level approach. It's meant to... Help us to understand a whole system, a whole organization. But clearly, this is not how the organization runs, right? So it's a very high level abstraction. But it's a useful abstraction. It's a useful model. I often say that when, um, especially in consultancy, when I used to start a new project, I would also say, let's do the business model canvas of the client we're about to work with. Even if we're not working on anything specifically related to their bottom line or the internal things, we need to understand at least at a high level, how the organization works. So the other thing about this is that we should not aim for the ideal universal solution, in the sense that if we, every organization is unique. And trying to come up with a solution that addresses for everyone, as we pretty much know in design, trying to design a something for everyone it means designing for pretty much nobody. So we want to have a focus, and often the focus here is our own organization. And very simply speaking, for example, um, let's talk about skill matrix or growth framework for our disciplines, right? If we try to design a skill matrix that is generalist, that will like oh, this is the universal, industry-wide skill matrix, that will actually not be very effective because an organization, for example, that doesn't have a product function, will have designers that need the skills. Um, that compensate for that. If we work in an organization with a very strong research function, the designers we need to hire and we need to grow don't necessarily need all the research skills that another organization would need. And so always aim to work within the context you're referring to, because that's the most effective. But the other thing is that all these things about systems also implies that, uh, and I would love quoting uh, Lagin, that is, System change. There's no such a thing as a static system. And we know this from ancient Greek and long, long time ago, but this is the core thing. So change, as it happens, is inevitable. It happens even if we don't want it to happen, will happen. But if instead we shift from a passive take on this and we shift to a more active take, we can also say that change is necessary, because it brings life. It helps companies thrive. It helps people thrive. Uh, within companies and within our own life, if we want to generalize further. So change is also a necessary action, a necessary thing that will improve what we do and uh, our work in general. Okay, and let's go down another level. Now we're talking about um, circles, different kinds of circles that are really, really uh, powerful tools to start working with change. And influence circles are a pretty common concept. Um, but it basically is a way, I personally think, to, to put ourselves at peace, that there are some things that are outside of our control. And what these three circles, of course, it's not, there is no hard limit between the three, right? So it's pretty blurry. And we all often work to, to blend and move between each other. But for example, if we start with the circle of concern, the, the most outer one, These are things that are entirely outside my reach, that are just happening. I cannot change them. I cannot influence them. I cannot do anything about it. So the only thing I can do about all these things is that I can manage how much they impact me, how much they influence me, and how much my team is affected, for example, for some decision that the organization is making as a whole, right? But, and here's where we try to shift from one level to another, we can keep an eye open for opportunities. Like, we can stay there and, say, and keep listening and say, I have, "Do I have an opportunity to then shift for a different circle if it's something that matters to you?" So, as an example, a while ago, um, I was talking with my line manager, and as I and it wasn't in in neither of our power to do this, but I was like, "You know, th- this vision piece that we're working on, like that we're using, is meaningless. Like, the the word is too vague." I could take literally this vision statement and apply it to a different company, and it would work for them. So there is no specificity, no unicity. And the person was talking to us. They were like, "Yeah, no, I agree. That's, I cannot do much about it." But because now I opened the door, I was able to shift the level of concern. So a few months later, this, the same person came back to me and said, "Hey, we actually want to review the vision now. We're working on it." And do you in this case, was like, "Do you want to to co lead the change?" I was like, "Sure." and so I shifted that. I took the opportunity, and I was able to transform it. Now, the next level down is circle of influence. These are the things that I cannot act directly on, that I cannot transform directly, but I can influence, so I can talk to other people and I can say, "Hey, things what should we do like do do you agree with me? Do you see this problem? You know trying to say and talk to other people and see what can be done about the thing. And so this is basically a basic change by alignment. So again, another example um, that was happening a while ago. I was discussing, this time not with my line manager, but with someone in product. And it's was like, do you think that how we're doing now, how we're running roadmaps is effective? Like, Is it clear? Is it, does it work for you? Because it doesn't for me. And it turns out that that was the case. And it turns out that many, many people were actually thinking the same thing. And so again, a few months later, this became a different piece of work where we actually started working on our roadmap, working on our internal processes, and changed the way we were doing things there. And finally, we get to the core of it, so the circle of control. And these are the things that are directly in my power to change. These are the things I can do. I can transform, and I can directly um, Move forward on my own. Now, on my own can be a stretch, especially in organizations, because again, we're dealing with other people. So there is always, that's why the, the circles are blurred to a point. So I'm always really dealing with other people. I always will need to involve other people. And so a good example here is I was uh, working in this case with my own team, and at some point I was like, hey, what do you think about making our internal process a little promising to gain flexibility, reduce the number of meetings? And people were like, you know what? Yeah, let's, let's give it a try. And so I had a direct power because it was the team I was working with. Everyone was on board. And I was able to do that the transformation. And so our team became better and better and better at asynchronous work. We defined a lot of processes. We changed the, the way we worked. And this was something directly in my control to transform. Now I want to present you a different set of circles, a lot of circles in this presentation. (laughs) Uh, But this is a model I I personally created, and I find it useful to plan, organize, and structure change in organizations. And it's basically structured on three levels. The reason why I work on this is that because I don't quite care of the specific hierarchy within an organization. But I care, again, their influence, what each level does. right? And so I don't care like, how many levels there are in between, how many items are there, how much is in between, but there are certain groups that can be brought together. So if we start talking, for example, at the organization circle level, this is the higher level. This is usually controlled and managed by executives, top management. Um, and it's usually about especially larger organizations, about running the company, setting a vision, a direction, a strategy, the financials and organizing all at this level. The thing is, this circle is also the circle that affects everyone in the company. So influencing at this level means changing for everyone, usually. Then we have one level below. And again, this could be many levels, could be one level. Doesn't quite matter. Could also be, if you work in a matrix organization, could be also be a slice, either horizontal or vertically. It's just a group or a large group of people. So usually, it's like middle management principles, and it's about strategy, tactic, and coordination, allocation of people, allocation of work. And these are usually just big chunks of the company, big chunks of the organization. And finally, we have the last level down, that is team circles. That is basically individual contributors, um, scoping execution of work, like doing the actual work. And it's usually very simple as an approximation a single team. Um, The thing here is, again, why I don't consider this like a hierarchy thing is that because I consider, for example, the manager working with the team part of this circle, not of the one above. Um, It's a single unit. That's the first team. Now, if we start talking about change, then some changes happen within the circle. I transform how a single level, how a single group, how this group of people work together. And this doesn't kind of influence anyone else. It's usually a very simple change that requires very little. Um, any other, any other group, um, group in the company doesn't need to do anything. So it's a fairly straightforward transformation. And sure, it can affect others. Because again, it's a complex system. We're all working together. But um, the change is usually self-contained. But the thing is, most of the time, that's not how it works. Most of the time, we're actually working across different groups, across different teams, and we're trying to influence and transform larger parts of the organization. So how do we do this change, actually? And using this model, we can start thinking about a sort of a language, about a sort of an approach on how to plan and how to organize. So we're talking top-down approaches. Now, the thing about top-down approaches is that they often Don't do these first steps. (laughs) So they often come as, oh, we need to do this change. Everyone should do this change. And that's it. And it's pretty plain. But if we weren't going to do this right, our first step would be consulting. It would be, hey, we want to do this change, what everyone thinks. And so we reach down, starting from the top level, to all the layers in the company and see what people think, what people suggest. Because we also want the ideas not just Uh, the reason why we shouldn't do the change, right? So we want to get a full view of this. The interesting thing about this is that, remember what I said at the beginning about facilitation? The thing here is that the consultation process is also part of the change itself, because it's actually sending a signal that is like, we want to change this. We think there is a problem, we think there is something that needs to (coughs) evolve and transform, and this, is how you start that messaging in a way that is inclusive and brings people together. And then again, ideally, it doesn't happen often, but we want to run a pilot. Let's assume that this is a pilot of a change at a team level. So again, we do the pilot. We see how it works. We see its it's success. And finally, assuming that this was successful, we roll out to the entire organization. Again, often, this whole thing usually skips one and two (laughs) and just does three. Um, But this is ideally how it should work. And now, if we get a little more in-depth into this, consulting is, is again, a facilitation process, a gathering process. But we want to include, ideally, both the people directly involved, so the the people that will be directly affected by the change, but also the people that are secondarily affected. So the people that don't have to do nothing but the change will also impact them how do they impact what do they feel about it you know what what changes for them and so the consultation process may be a little broader um, than what we want now the thing here is that i i well understand that this model framing in this way feels like a lot Uh, but i want to start at very beginning before before i move to all the other steps that This could also be a very lean. If you have a small company, a small organization, the consultation step could be very short, could be even an an hour discussion with with a group of people. right? Doesn't have to be complex, as long, in a way, as it happens. The pilot, uh, again, is the first experiment to see, does the change work? Uh, And especially, does the change stick? So people are happy. Is this effective? Is this working? Is it improving what they're doing? And this is key because it's also a way to gather uh, insight and gather how much the the change is effective in the organization. Again, it doesn't have to be huge most of the time, but you want to run it. And finally, once proven, we roll out. Again, ideally, the rollout should not be just a a message out. We're going to do this from from today on, and it's done. And you assume it's done. It's a process in itself. And if the change is complex, it's probably going to take a while for everyone to get on board, to everyone to get adopted. But the most important thing is that we still want to check with the people how the change has been affected. Because even if the pilot was successful, we want to make sure that the pilot is represented. So again, even in the rollout process, we want to be careful about what we're transforming here. Uh, But let's go to to another example. So this is um, name is a bit weird, but we start in the middle. And again, we consult down. We, we check what's happening. We run a, pro, a pilot. Um, so again, we want to make sure that the change we, we define it in the consultation process is effective. But then we add a promotion. So we add a step here where we're saying, hey, this thing that we piloted was successful. And now we, we move up in the hierarchy, and we say, OK, how can I promote this activity? How we can make sure that it's worked for others? And then, of course, there is, again, a rollout process. So promotion is essential here because it means that, first of all, we want to have a way to say, hey, the pilot worked. So the pilot isn't just a thing with the team. It's also a way to gather the feedback we need to prove a point and say, hey, this change could be useful to others. Let's, Let's try to roll out. Let's try to make sure everyone else can use it again. And can be become widely, more widely adopted in the company, right? So, the promotion step, again, is often skipped. Like some people like do a change, transform, they improve their own team, and then nothing. But if it's successful, why not? Let's have a discussion. Let's see if it, this can become more widely adopted. And then we have another approach that, again, names are a bit weird. Bottom expands, but the idea here is that we move horizontally. So we create a pilot, successful. Uh, in this case, in a sense, there is, of course, consultation, but it's within a team, so it's, it's usually very short. Um, but then we, we try to influence horizontally, and we try to make a transformation a change all the way down. Now, of course, this could also happen at, at any other layer. Uh, it's usually here where it happens, however. Um, but the idea of championing can be incredibly powerful. And what we want to do in this process is not just uh, pushing to other team, hey, try this, try this, try this. But we want to try to find champions, to find advocates that also say, hey, that idea is good. Like, I want to, to do it with my team. Can we adopt? Can you help me adopt it? And when they do, then now they can do the same with other teams. So we're not just looking for teams that adopt the change, but we're also looking for advocates that can be part of the change and the transformation itself. So again, when you're planning and structuring this kind of change, be careful and try to include the idea that is not just how we um, include our teams, how we propagate, but also trying to identify, hey, I noticed that you are particularly passionate about this topic. And you elevate them with you to become a champion. Then we have the classic bottom-up. So we have a piloted stage. We champion, again, so we make sure that it works with our teams, other people, it's adopted, it's successful. And then we move up. And we try to say, hey, again, this worked. This was effective. But again, this probably, because it's two steps up, you need to make a plan that is a bit different. We need to find different strategies to be able to influence a in mutual stage. And this could take multiple s- steps. Now, it's a bit simplified. But of course, it could be championed at one layer, and then a rollout within that. And then, hey, this was successful, and go up another level. So it could be a multi-stage process, of course. Um, And then, of course, yeah, as I mentioned, rollouts here. Then we have another one. This is especially useful when we are trying to um, make a change that is not a change, for example, in this case, at a team level. So, we cannot actually pilot or transform or do anything at that level. But what we can do is try to influence others and say, hey, do you think that this is a problem? Do you think? And so you start gathering and creating allies that can work with you in, in creating a suggestion or a proposal and be part of um, the transformation you want to make. And then, then, only then, we promote it up and we say, hey, We all think, (laughs) across all our teams, that we should change this. And here's a few ideas you can propose. And can we do the change at a higher level? And of course, it's a bit trickier. This is, if you remember the circles of um, influence, this is working a little bit more on the external circles, because you don't have a direct power to do a change. But this is how you can articulate the change even if you don't have the power there, if you're not in control of the transformation there. And so the allyship is is necessary in this case, because you don't want to be, well, in some cases, you, you may have enough trust and enough influence inside your company that you alone can create this kind of ripples. But most of the time, by creating allies and creating, hey, more and more people at your same level are actually saying the same thing, to the people, and then you can create a unified suggestion, it can be incredibly incredibly powerful to drive change. So the idea here is that these um, six, in a sense, verbs could become um, steps to configure your plan of change inside larger organizations especially. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean a huge organization, because as long as you, have, you start having a few teams and maybe a couple of levels, all these things apply. Again, it doesn't have to be huge things. It can be very, very scaled down. But at the same time, these are steps that happen and that can help you shape and transform and prepare a plan for the change you may want to do inside your own organization. Now. This was preparing a plan, organizing and everything, but there is another element that um, actually I will touch later, but people are resistant to change, so if we start the discussion by saying, "Let's just change," and you apply the change, and that 's it. Uh, people are often resistant to it because and for the right reason, actually, you know so One way to do this is to take what I would call an experimental approach to change. So instead of saying, we are going to change x, what we're going to say is that we are running an experiment for a transformation and see if the experiment is successful. Now, this changes completely the mindset of the people. On one side, because you're not assuming that what we are suggesting is 100% right. And at the same time, um, you are asking people to say, hey, for a limited, specific amount of time, uh, I want you to buy in 100% on this. So even if you, hopefully not, but even if you disagree to a certain extent, let's give it a try. Can we give it a try in earnest and see if uh, it works for you and if it's effective? And if not, no harm done. We can go back. So this is something we can break down And really high level, but again, it's very useful to have this kind of high level models in three main steps. So we want to a plan stage, a run stage, and a review stage. And the key, remember, is again communication. So we want to say clearly, this is an experiment, and this is how we're going to run it. So on the planning stage, we want to be very clear about what is the problem and what is the solution that we're trying to, to drive with this experiment. So we want to be state very clearly uh, at this stage. So this is for communication, so other people understand, but also for alignment. And later, if this is successful, it's also an incredibly uh, useful starting point for the communication, you know, for the promotion level, uh, or for the championing level of your work. And again, this is something that all of us as designers are really good at really good at identifying problems, really good at synthesizing solutions, and just make sure you're stating it clearly and you're communicating it clearly. And then another thing, as designers, we're really good at So we want to co-design with the people. So at the planning stage, we want to try to identify solutions to try to figure out, OK, bring it in, like give me your expertise, give me your ideas, uh, what would work for you? What would not work for you? Like, What are the problems you're seeing? Are we also aligned with the problem? right? And so we want to bring in into this discussion, of course, you, the two levels as before. So we want to bring in both the people that are going directly to having to do the change, but also the people that are going to be affected like as a second degree on that and get everyone's feedback before we shape the actual proposal and the actual solution that we're aiming for. Now, how we do this? This could be workshops. This could be uh, all kinds of activities online, in person, could drive from surveys. Like, these are literally all the tools that, as designers, we have available when we're doing research, when we're shaping solutions, when we're trying to identify what we want to build, how we want to build, and how we want to solve this. So it should be nothing new. We're just turning the spotlight inside the organization. Uh, One thing, and this is very overlooked because artifacts are not um, super clear when we're talking about processes. You know, we're not talking about design. We're talking about reference. We're going to talk about story maps. We have all these kind of artifacts that are defined. But if I ask any one of you, then say, what is the artifact for a process, right? We're probably going to get 10, 20, 30 different answers, right? And, but the thing is that using Artifact accelerates progress and creates something we can discuss and align on. And this is actually very, very similar to the idea that if we present a wireframe, it actually communicates and shows what we're trying to design, what we're trying to build, much faster than words and discussions and clarifications and so on. The moment it becomes real is the moment the change happens. So how how can we do this with processes or internal change? Um, I would define this as the checklist approach. So try to write um, documentation, an internal guideline, as if it's a step by step checklist of the things that the person needs to do with this change. You know how it works in detail. Like literally write it as a new joiner joins the company needs to read it through step by step and needs to be able to replicate it. And you will see that the moment you start writing this is the moment everyone comes together. Because it's like, "Mm, actually, no, these steps, I don't think it works. Let's change it. And you you switch around. And you can accelerate the transformation, accelerate the change so, so much. Because now you have a single artifact that everyone has to come and agree on. And it's not anymore abstract thinking. It's actually, yeah, there are steps in there. And I do agree with each step. Do I want to change something? Is it actually going to make my life harder? Because now there are a few steps in between that are adding work to me. Can I change that in a way that is actually simplifying my work instead? right? And so that is when become clear. And so using checklist is an incredibly, incredibly powerful tool in this kind of scenario, in this kind of transformations. Then we have the run stage. So let's assume we plan, we co-design, we discuss the change together. We identified a solution. We identified how we want to do things from now on. And now we kick off. Um, this could happen whatever is your internal communication channel, um, whatever. you know, I don't know exactly how your company runs. But you want to make clear, and as public and as openly as possible, that something has been changed. Because this is a message not just for the people, again, that are going to, be to do the change, but it's also a message to everyone else that something is being tried. And again, this also creates a marking point that later you can refer back to and say, hey, we did this. Like We're doing this. We're running this. And so you you have a reference for everyone to see. And this basically restates what is the problem, what is the solution, what are the changes that we're suggesting, and so on. So it's a sort of a summary of where we're starting on. The next step here is what I call check-ins, is we want to make sure to review this ongoing. And this is a bit tricky, because we're not just looking for changes in the actual process we just defined. Like, oh, maybe we, we tweaked this. Actually, we didn't consider this, pro- like, this issue. We, we thought, actually, this is going to be simpler. So we want to make some tweaks here and there. But also, we want to check in for the people commitment to the change we just did. Because, yeah, you, everyone agrees. Everyone joined in. Everyone is happy to try. But sometimes they just, oh, yeah i sorry, I just did the thing as we were doing it before. And so reminders and checking in with people is also almost as important as making sure that the new process, the change, is actually happening um, in the way we, you planned and you discussed. So this also leads to adjustments. And the important thing about adjustments here is that you want to, to tweak the things as they happen. So of course, you don't have to be strict about, oh, we defined a plan, that's it. It's not going to change until the end. Um, But at the same time, you don't want to radically change it. So you want to still stick to the initial uh, hypothesis, the initial problem, the initial solution you develop, the core of it. Um, The collaterals can change, but the core should not, because you're trying to prove if it works or if it doesn't. right? Um, And for example, what I mean with this is that, a while ago, I was um, discussing with the team. And not for me, but it came out from one person in the team that was suggesting, hey, what if we start doing like, stand-ups in text in Slack? And I'm saying, like, OK, yeah, everyone happy with it, because everyone was like, yeah, I can, I can take that moment to just write down, take a five minutes, focus on is the one thing I want to focus today on. It's going to help me to, to reassess. And OK. so. We explored what what it meant. We adopted a tool called uh, Geekbot at the time, and everyone was happy to try. We tried, I think, for three months or so. And but of course, so the, the thing here is that we kept tweaking it, right? So Geekbot was sending out questions to everyone every morning, um, but then we tweaked the questions because after a, a week or so, people were like, mm, "Actually, this question is a bit weird. Sounds strange." Or actually, there was a question that was like, oh, this actually feels too happy. Like, I'm not that happy every day. So let's make it more neutral. Um, so yeah, we tweaked the language. But we didn't change the core bit. So we didn't change the fact that it was text end ups in Slack. We just tweaked it to make it see and, and make it work. Um, and finally, we, we reached the third stage, and we run a retrospective. Ideally, again, we try to involve everyone, people directly involved in the change and people indirectly involved with the change affected. And we want to check, basically, to see if the experiment was successful. Now, depending on the experiment you're running, this could be um, focusing on different things, right? So you may want to check to see if you can check productivity. Um, You may want to see if you have hard numbers. Sometimes you can also do that. Like if it was a change, for example, that was um, geared toward I don't know reducing the number of, ca- of cases solved per, per day, or the time to to conduct a code review or things like that, then yeah, you can measure the time. Otherwise, there are softer measures. So figure out what works for you, and also always check how people felt. Did the change feel good? Because Maybe it was an increase in productivity, but it felt like a chore to everyone. I was like, hmm, that's probably not something you want to push forward. <laughs> because ultimately, if people mood goes down and down and down, the more this keeps going, it stops being effective at some point, even if initially it is. Right? And the other thing important here is that you're not you're not running this to check if the actual team wants the change, but you're running this also to create the source, like in a sense, that the data you need if you later want to promote it and you want to expand and say, hey, these are the results with my team. Do you like these results? You could have the same results for yourself. And of course, there are three things here. If the experiment was successful, stops being an experiment, becomes rolled out, and becomes official, let's say, in your team. And so from now on, it's done. Good. That's how we do things from now on. The second thing is, actually, there was some major tweaking. So not the the in-between tweaking that we did so far, but we need to revisit this. So usually this means we keep the problem, because we know that's a problem we want to fix, but we're actually changing the solution. So we're trying to look for another solution and rerun the experiment. Or, and this is also a good thing, so revert. Nobody liked it, or the productivity didn't increase or they didn't free up people's time, or didn't make things more flexible. Good. OK. We know now. Let's revert. we learned learn something. And this is also super important. It's super important that teams acknowledge that this experiment can fail and will fail. I won't go as far as saying, maybe the first time run something you know you're going to fail, to prove the point. So the people start feeling comfortable in saying, Oh, that was not just you telling us a story just to convince us to run the experiment. You're actually okay to make it fail and revert back. So, of course, you can try, but um, this is something that is super, super important that people know that could happen. Now, time is a friend in all this because you need to acknowledge that you can you cannot make a change in a very short amount of time. You need to give people the time to understand, to process, to try things out, and see how these things work for them. And that's the only way to, to make sure that change stays in stick. This also means that timing is also your enemy, because ultimately, the fastest you can make a change, the better, if it's successful, of course. But also, you don't want to push too hard, because if you start pushing hard or too many changes at once, people will feel resistance, and then you're like, even if the change was good, you changed too much at once, and people were just like, nope. But if you split it out in five stages incrementally, then people will be totally OK with exactly the same changes. So there is a balance there. There is something you need to, to address and, and review. And usually call this in a bit of a cheeky way that is the same thing as product market fit for products. It's a process organizational fit. So what we're trying to check with this change is if the process change is fit for the organization is designed for, or for the team, or for the group is designed for. Because again, there are no universals. Remember the initial slide? We're not trying to design universal solution. We're trying to design a solution that fits the organization and the team is designed for. And how do we check this? I would say that there are many ways to check this, but there are two key ways, two key questions. One is, do people want it? So if I run this and I have a successful pilot program that maybe is expanding, do other teams look at the first team and say, can I have that? If they're doing that, that's super strong. I mean, it's not usually that strong, I have to admit. But if you have a hint that people are curious about it, that are asking about it, that are like, hey, I I think what you have there could help me. That's a pull, right? And so people want it. And now you have a strong, strong sign that your change is effective. And the second thing is the change sticky. Because you may do a change, the team applies, it's happy, it's successful, you reach the end, and then it doesn't stick. So something did not work. And you may want to check why it didn't stick. This becomes a question for you. But if it sticks, again, it means that it was desirable, it was effective, and improved people's life, improved processes, and it was sticky. One thing that is related to this, unfortunately, and it happened to me so many times, especially at the beginning, was trying to change things. I present an idea, we discussed an idea, we made a workshop, everyone was aligned. Everyone's happy. Let's do the change. Yay!" <laughs> and nothing. And then I, a month passes by, and I was like, "Didn't we say that we were going to do this?" What, what happened?" I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, so uh, actually, yeah, I wanted to do this, just forgot, sorry. Um, so agreeing doesn't necessarily mean that the change is going to happen. You still need to put the effort in to remind people, remember the check-in stage I mentioned before, the whole point about experimental approach. You need to keep, in a sense, hand-holding the change until it sticks. And the moment you can step out and not be there anymore, and the change sticks, then you're done. Now, pushbacks, Um, because change is hard. And there are people involved. (laughs) And people sometimes are not quite uh, conciliatory. But the thing is, I want to add a note on politics. Like often when we use this term, politics, in a cyber organization, it's yeah, it's used with a negative connotation, right? But I also use that as a sort of a moment to trigger a question. In the sense that if I hear someone say, yeah, no, it's, it's a usual company politics. I cannot deal with this. I was like, "Hmm, OK, so stop a second. What do you mean with politics? There. In that specific instance, in that specific situation, what is happening? So I use that as a driver to, to then trigger a, a deeper dive in what's happening. Because politics, as I noted here, are just humans interacting in a way. And, so this is, to me, the key thing, right? And yes, I want to acknowledge, yeah, sometimes there are, can I swear? I don't know. <laughs> but sometimes these people exist, so I don't want to dismiss that. But depending, and hopefully, you are in an organization that is good, and these kind of people are very, very few, but then what, it, what that means that you are getting angry at someone for other reason. And usually the reason is that everyone is thinking they're doing the best thing they can, but they're just not quite aligned with each other. And so the three core issues that often I see that usually get referred to and cascade down, maybe weeks after weeks that this builds up, builds up, builds up, and people then start referring to it as politics. The first one is lack of clarity. we are not even clear on what the goal was. We're maybe working on something, we're maybe discussing something, but what is the goal? What is the thing that we're actually referring to? I I always find still, as today, after decades of working um, in this profession, that sometimes the question is, okay, what is the goal? It's still one of the strongest drivers of change anywhere. But then let's assume we have a goal, but they're not aligned. Now we have groups of people, heaps of people, teams, that they all have goals, but they're different. And so this is the second layer, right? So are we aligned? Are we talking the same mess? Are we thinking and working on exactly the same thing? Maybe not. So sometimes identifying that the other team or acknowledging that the other team is not working with you because they just have a different goal. can be super important and solves, again, politics. And the third level is just larger organization. Sometimes you do have a goal. You are aligned on the goal, but the organization is poor, especially if you're working with many teams, with many people, larger groups, because exponentially, the larger the group is, the easiest the more organization you need, the easier it is to, to make mistakes. But sometimes it's just lack of organization. We're working on the same thing. It's just that, oh, yeah, no, I didn't communicate this clearly. Or, yeah, no, I know that this was not quite um, the thing you asked it for. You know, there are a lot of things lack of organization, again, can cascade down. And then you figure out three months later that, oh, wait a second. I thought we were like we were planning to do this. But your plan was different, even if we have the same goal, and we didn't quite align what we were trying to do. And then we have pure resistances. Like these are factors that us as humans, as individuals, um, uh, have and play all the time. The first one is inertia. So the energy and the time required to change um, is often non zero, right? Sometimes you can do a change by automation. So you can modify your software, modify your guidelines, so the change actually is at zero cost. But it's rare. So most of the times, you, you are requesting people to understand the change, change something, how they do things. And the answer is that I don't have time. Maybe they're in crisis mode. Maybe they're responding. Maybe they have a deadline. You know, Maybe they're just overwhelmed by things. Maybe there are just five other changes happening at the same time. Right? And so you, you need to start helping them. If this is the problem, you need to start helping them. OK, how, how can I help you to find the time? And sometimes it's just a matter of, OK, let's wait the three weeks until you have delivered this, and let's bring this up this conversation again. So you're not pushing them in the wrong moment. right? And sometimes it's just, hey, let's, what if I book just one hour of your time next week, and we have a conversation of, about this change, and let's have a discussion. Um, so yeah, first one. Second one is fears. This is raw. This is, in a sense, the lowest level uh, in our emotional um, uh, internal processing. And sometimes we, the fear, the tricky thing with fears is that sometimes we don't even recognize there is a fear there. We're just reacting defensively or not wanting to change. And so the, the kind of process that works with fears is trying to make, emerge them. Okay, what, what are the things? Like, let's have a chat. Let's, let's review what, what are you worried about? What are the things the things that happen if we're doing this change, right? And this is, of course, one of the main reasons why the experimental approach is so effective because it helps lessening fears because, like, yeah, we can revert it. So, okay, I'm, I'm good in trying. I'm, going, I'm good in giving it a go and see how it goes. Then pure ignorance. Um... It happens to me a few times, this is mostly in consulting, that start working with a team, start discussing with someone, and they just don't know that a better process exists. And so they're just used to something else, and the fact that they don't know, it makes them not acknowledging that a better way exists. And so they're not even seeking it, they're not open to it, because they're just like, yeah, this is just what I know about it. So, Sometimes being closed down, and this happens, especially there is a, a dynamic, especially in an organization that have people that stayed for a long time, that they have a very little openness to the industry as a whole. Uh, they have little awareness of the changes that that, happened, that what other companies have tried. Um, often these are people that don't go to conferences. <laughs> um, because that's where you know ideas get shared. And so this is a very good way to fight is to to start sharing and opening up uh, the individuals to external stimuli, external change, bring them to conferences, involve them, share inter- articles articles internally. And finally, happers. Like, no, just my way of doing things is the best way. That's, that's it. That's like, eh, okay. Um again this is Probably one of the hardest to deal with. There isn't a lot uh, that we can do this, especially if this person is in a position of power. Uh, but again, acknowledging that this is happening—that is not one of the other three cases, for example—is uh, important because you can work around it. <laughs> because you can—you can try to say to find ways. You know there is one specific person that is fighting against it. Okay, what can you do to align them or? I'm saying it like softly, like, or to make them think it's their idea, <laughs> right? Uh, so, what you can do here? Yeah, these are all good strategies you can use there. Uh, but I acknowledge this is the hardest. And sometimes pushback happens. Again, we need to acknowledge the negatives. So, pushback sometimes is just a consequence. Maybe, maybe you timed it wrongly. Maybe you did a change, it was a good change at the right time, but something else happened. Uh, at the same time, that just broke the, the change process. So pushback can happen, and we need to acknowledge it. So the first thing to do is learn about it. What was the actual thing that broke it? What was the actual thing that created the pushback that stopped the change from happening? right? And the key thing here is that, yes, focus on uh, what went wrong in the process. If you're using experimental approach, you, you already have half an answer here. You can run a retrospective and so on. But it's also essential here to acknowledge the reaction of the people, like what happened between the people that created the pushback, right? And we can go back to the fears. We can go back to the discussion about politics, like all these elements you want to learn because you want to know exactly what to do different the next time, right? And then, this is probably the hardest part, wait. Um, You don't want to keep pushing something because there is a sort of a, a period of resistance after a pushback, and keep pushing during that period will just make you look bad. You can, from time to time, still remind that the problem has not gone away, right? But you may be careful if not pushing too hard. About that, um, again, happened to me in the past. There was this was like more of a product change than an organizational change. But someone tried to make a big sweeping change in one of the product, which was a good change, which was a good transformation. Um, but the solution was not quite right. And when I started, it wasn't directly my my change, but I was trying to push it forward. It was a good one, I was trying to support, but I started seeing that it was going bad and was not be racing well inside the organization. And at that point, I knew that I could not do that again for the next 12 months. And so I needed to wait 12 months before raising the point again, suggesting a solution again, bringing people together again. And at that point, the change started to happen because we learned from it. Finally, we want to catch when the problem resurfaced. And again, it may be you that brings it up again. Uh, but if you're a primary service, we want to be there ready with the learnings to propose it again, to be again there at the right time to now bring it up and bring the transformation you want. And finally, you just try again. With all the steps, all the things I mentioned earlier in the presentation, you create a new plan, you create a new adoption, you use the circles approach, um, you um, use the experimental approach, and you design a new change and you try again to make it happen. But the key thing in all of this is the waiting bit. That's unfortunately, and it's disappointing because we have to wait. Uh, But at the same time, it's also essential because people need just time to forget (laughs) that the bad thing happened in the past. Um, And so, yeah. The, I want to close, however, with, again, quoting Le one of my favorite authors, and saying that um, with this quote, because I think it's, it's really powerful it, as an invitation to start asking and focusing often on the right question, because right questions are a really, really strong driver to change, and asking the right question is often more important than pretty much everything else. And that's it for me. Thank you.